0: CHAPTER TEN, PART ONE OF GUIDE TO THE STUDY OF THE CHRISTIAN RELIGION This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Smith Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion Edited by Gerald Burney Smith Chapter 10, Introduction What is the scope of practical theology? Practical theology is the science which studies the activities that result from the institutionalizing of religion, specifically of Christianity. Christianity is not an institution, but a way of life, of faith. This faith becomes institutional in the activity of preaching, whence the science of homiletics, in the organized ministry to personal religious needs, whence the science of pastoral care, in an organized community, the church, with a definite constitution, whence the science of ecclesiastical polity, in the organized church with an elaborate system of practical activities, whence the science of church administration, in a technique of worship for the development of religious feeling, whence the science of liturgics, in a system of educational development, whence the science of religious education, and in all these interests extended beyond the borders of the immediate Christian community, whence the science of missions. The word practical, as applied to this body of studies, is fitting enough. The word theology is, of course, entirely inappropriate, but comes down traditionally from the use of the word to cover the whole system of studies connected with religion, It is the sense indeed in which it is used in the title of this volume no one has yet succeeded in finding a better term to cover this comprehensive field part one homiletics definition and scope homiletics is the formulation of the laws of effective pulpit discourse it is a science while preaching is an art the two cannot be divorced homiletics does not impose its rules upon the preacher but the effective preacher furnishes the data for the homiletician whose business it is to observe the principles that actually obtain in successful preaching the popular preacher who is fond of declaring that he never studied homiletics that he breaks all the rules of the schools is a valuable piece of laboratory material he is like the poet who sings metrically without understanding prosody like the artist who paints effectively, without studying anatomy and design, like the singer who charms us, although he has not learned the niceties of technique. The probability, as he has some glaring faults which could be removed by the comparative study of other effective preachers, it is the humble task of homiletics not to tell the master of assemblies how to do his work, but to note the elements of effectiveness in different masters, with a view to determining what constitutes the power of the pulpit over the hearts of men. The study evidently involves a knowledge of theology, of exegesis, of literary and historical criticism, of the history of the pulpit, of the movements of modern thought, and of general and social psychology. THE MODERN CONCEPTION OF THE SERMON Change from the idea of derivation of doctrine from Scripture This conception of the sermon depends upon the conception of religion. When the dominant idea was that of a plan of salvation authoritatively contained in the Bible, and to be found implicitly or explicitly in every part of the Bible, then the business of the pulpit was to expound a text of scripture with reference to its bearing upon some element of redemptive doctrine. The procedure of the sermon was therefore determined by its function. First of all, the exact meaning of the text must be set forth. Then the doctrine to be derived from the text must be stated and defended. Then the practical application of the doctrine must be made. But when religion is freed from intellectualism and becomes a matter of attitude, motive, experience, faith in a God not of the dead but of the living, the sermon makes a different appeal. It finds its authority in experience, in conscience, in the eternal yea, which is man's affirmation of the truth which finds him. The sermons of Philip Brooks should be read for this quality. The Trend Away from Apologetic Preaching The modern sermon, therefore, is not apologetic. The preacher does not think of himself as set for the defense of the faith, but for the stimulation of faith. The aim of the sermon is to secure not the agreement of the hearer, with the views of the preacher, but an honest consideration, unbiased by prejudice and selfishness, of the religious problem involved in the discourse. For example, the modern sermon is not concerned to explain and defend a certain theory of biblical inspiration, which is, after all, a piece of dialectics, but rather to make the scriptures a motive power in human life. The one might result in an acceptance of the infallibility of the Bible, the other would lead to a recognition of its availability preaching from experience the true preacher can be known by this that he deals out to the people his life life passed through the fire of thought the last phrase is important and expresses that which distinguishes the sermon from exhortation The preacher is a man of religious experience who has drunk deep of the wells of religious inspiration. He knows the modern world in which he lives. He talks to the people persuasively of those religious and moral certitudes which he knows will illumine the personal and social problems of their lives. The place of the Bible in modern preaching. The historical study of the Bible The modern view of the Bible, as presented in the chapters of this book dealing with the study of the Old and New Testaments, involves a change in its pulpit use. It can no longer be regarded as a storehouse of texts. It must be used as a literature, the product of definite social situations, and must be used in accordance with the canons of literary quotation. Regarding any biblical statement, we must always ask two questions. What did the writer mean? And... What was the situation which made such meaning significant? Then we may consider its contribution to our own needs. The wise minister will therefore be regularly engaged in some phase of Bible study, which he will pursue scientifically with the aid of the best literature that he can secure. The Bible as a literature of power. As soon as one ceases to think of the Bible as a repository of redemptive facts, and appreciates its significance as a revelation of spiritual experience its value for the sermon is transformed we look now not for a text from which to deduce a theme but for a contact with the human heart in its need or in its power here is the whole gamut of religious experience from the ecstasy of rapt fellowship with god to the cry of skepticism and despair from the sober consideration of prudent principles of conduct to the splendid self-sacrifice of heroic devotion and here is the experience of jesus in whom by faith we see god on the basis of such an appreciation of the biblical literature the minister prepares his sermon he does not have to hunt for a text his biblical study is constantly furnishing him with great suggestions of course he keeps these recorded as they occur for the best thoughts have wings and must be caught as they fly the enlarged opportunity of expository preaching. The superficial acceptance of the new view of the Bible has led some preachers to a diminished use of it, but the historical approach gives opportunity for a more vital and more interesting expository preaching. The wonderful life of that Oriental past, with its essential humanness and its many points of contact with our own day affords admirable opportunity for the illustration of moral attitudes toward life in recent years there have been some notable exhibitions of the finest kind of exposition in the pulpit witness the work of george adam smith and c r brown and the interest of the short course series the cultivation of the social imagination By the presentation of the way in which religious men met the problems of other days is excellent education for the modern man. The Place of the Text Early Christian preaching was entirely expository. The text was a considerable unit of Scripture, but the development of doctrinal preaching led to the selection of the single verse or phrase from which the all-important doctrine was to be deduced. Thus the sermon came to have its authority from its derivation from the Bible. If the preacher desired to preach upon a theme which was not treated in the Bible, he had to find a text which by some homiletic ingenuity he could accommodate to his purpose. The modern pulpit is less rigid in its devotion to the text. Most ministers who desire to speak upon a subject which is not treated in the Scripture are honest enough not to pretend that it is treated there. The omission of the text on such occasions is a sign of respect for the Bible. It may be hoped that this freedom will do away with the foolishness of accommodated texts. Doctrinal Preaching Doctrine and Experience Doctrine in religion is suffering the usual fate of the deposed autocrat with none so poor to do him reverence. And the determination to be freed from creeds that were imposed from without, men have declared that they will have none of them. But that would be intellectual anarchy. The only way to escape from doctrine is to give up thinking, for doctrine is nothing but formulated experience. All men have their doctrines, economic, social, political, legal, medical, pedagogical, as soon as we say that we believe in a minimum wage for women we have laid down a doctrine the objection to the creed is that it formulates doctrine once and for all as if human experience were complete not only is human experience changing with changing conditions but the contribution which the past furnishes to the experience of today is itself modified by our new interpretations of the past what men need therefore is doctrine that will formulate the meaning of life as the thinking of the past and the deepest religious insight of the present enables us to understand it. Christian Doctrine and Modern Thought Faith and science apprehend truth differently, but not independently. Each of them contributes to experience. Faith which does not take account of the facts of life is a will-o'-the-wisp and its doctrines or foolishness. The minister must therefore be a scholar his knowledge of human history and literature of the physical and social sciences of philosophy and psychology will give him the intellectual equipment that will enable him to distinguish between the things that we can know and the things that we may believe guarded thus from intellectual presumption faith goes forth upon its daring course the preacher confidently but humbly tells the people what he believes about god christ providence regeneration prayer spiritual communion human worth and destiny and the other supreme themes of human interest the minister must guard himself most carefully at this point he is the one speaker who may proceed without interruption and close without rejoinder let him cultivate the art of self-criticism let him be sure that he distinguishes between what he knows and what he believes then he may speak with freedom and with power practical character of the doctrinal sermon the preacher does not very much impart information he communicates the teachings of religious experience of course these are founded upon knowledge and one's religious convictions must constantly be brought to the test of the severest intellectual criticism but the preacher is not a theological lecturer as a teacher in classes and conferences he seeks clear thinking as a preacher he is not so much concerned with correct thinking as with religious attitude his purpose is not that his hearer's conception of the person of christ shall be the same as his own but that the spiritual lordship of Jesus shall be significant to them. He is not seeking an agreement upon a theory of prayer, but a common appreciation of the value of prayer. He is trying to make truth plain, but his chief purpose is to make it vital. He can generally test his success in this endeavor by estimating the practical effect of the sermon upon himself. HE PREACHES BEST TO OTHERS, WHO PREACHES FIRST OF ALL TO HIMSELF. ETHICAL PREACHING THE NEW ETHICAL EMPHASIS THE OBJECT OF DOCTRINAL PREACHING NOT ONLY GOES BEYOND INTELLECTUAL COMPREHENSION TO AN EXPERIENCE OF THE DOCTRINE, BUT GENERALLY FARTHER STILL TO SOME ACTIVITY WHICH IS THE RESULT OF THE EXPERIENCE. The habit of mind of our age connects religion with duty. Those who desire to connect religion with creed feel themselves to be opposed in the trend of the times, albeit they may deplore the condition. But even such always preach that faith without works is dead. The essentially practical character of the Bible has been rediscovered and Christianity is more and more preached today as a way of life the new social emphasis. The latest response of the pulpit is to the awakened social consciousness of our time. The ethics of the pulpit have been individualistic. To be sure, in temperance work, in political and missionary utterances, preachers have often struck the social note, as they did a generation ago in the conflict with slavery, But the larger social problems involved in the complicated economic and industrial conditions of today have rather dismayed the minister. Some have rushed in and made themselves ridiculous. Most preachers have decided that social reform was none of their business. A few great voices have really spoken with prophetic power. The modern ministry is trying to find itself in this new difficult situation. There are three elements in the congregation those whose ethical outlook is still entirely individualistic and who can only connect religion with personal duty, those whose controlling social passion demands a social gospel, and the great mass who are just awakening to a sense of social responsibility and who find unexpected vitality in a preaching that strikes the note of faith in the salvation of human society. Rauschenbusch has done this most effectively in his two books, which are really sermons, though not homiletic in form, Christianity and the Social Crisis and Christianizing the Social Order. Religion and Morality in Modern Preaching The leading preachers of today recognize the danger that the larger ethical and social interest may become a substitute for religion that the gospel may thus become a program instead of a revelation. They are therefore seeking the social dynamic in a reaffirmation of the great religious certitudes. Thus, preachers are inspired by the recognition of the unity of the religious and social passion in the Hebrew prophets. They are putting new emphasis on the idea of the kingdom of God as at once a religious and a social concept. They are reinterpreting the coming age of the New Testament in terms of the modern world. This may be seen in the preaching of Clifford, Horton, Ingram, Coffin, and Gordon. Evangelistic Preaching The Evangelist, the least responsive to the modern spirit. Evangelistic preaching is that form of pulpit appeal which is designed to induce persons who are not controlled by religious motives to desire and decide to become so the problem then is the awakening of the desire and its stimulation to the point of decision to what motive shall the immediate appeal be made manifestly the strong primal motives of fear and self-regard form the easiest avenues of approach historically the hell and heaven motives have been splendidly efficient and the opportunity of giving adhesion to a plan of salvation has afforded the necessary initial act which has launched the penitent upon a new current of experience that notable results of ethical achievement and spiritual regeneration are obtainable by this process the history of evangelicalism abundantly attests but on the other hand the danger of a dependence upon a magical salvation provided and not achieved concerned with the future life, and not with the present, has been all too pitifully evident. But our modern perplexity is of another kind. The eternal truths underlying the ideas of heaven and hell, and underlying the conception of substitutionary atonement, are profoundly real to the thoughtful mind, but superficially these ideas are not acceptable to modern men. The preaching of the fire of hell, may obscure rather than vivify the fact of retribution. The commercial presentation of the atonement may not help men to appreciate the passion of God. The reinterpretation of these appeals to fundamental motives is the need of today, but the popular evangelist still pursues the easier method. To be sure, the majority of men do not live altogether in the modern world, and they may still respond to the old appeals. But the condition is fraught with peril some significant trends there are not wanting evidences of better things some of our most flamboyant evangelism connects itself definitely with social righteousness e g cleaning up the town evangelistic campaigns sometimes eliminate the saloons the evangelism of the men and religion forward movement was largely free from the craft theologizing of the past and struck a definite social note. The great Sunday school world is getting away from the idea of evangelizing children and is seeking their spiritual awakening and culture. Wise ministers without any campaigns are presenting worthy motives to religious life, and men and women are responding. And most significant of all, the great student movement throughout the world has given up the old appeal entirely and is presenting Christianity as Jesus' way to be followed in humble and joyous fellowship with God. Beecher and Bushnell did that in their day. Drummond did it. Dawson, Jefferson, Ingram, Mott are so preaching today. The problem of content. We need a vitally evangelistic message and we shall get it by making all preaching evangelistic. The great social motive must become supreme, and the pulpit must summon men to come with penitent hearts and clean hands, because such are needed in the great crusade. After all, it is but a modernizing of the splendid appeal, repent because the kingdom of God is coming near. THE FORM OF THE MODERN SERMON the modification of the traditional form. The traditional form of text, proposition, proof, application belonged to the conception of the sermon as a derivation of doctrine from the Bible and the application of it to life. With the changed conception there follows change in form. There need be no text. The text may be a great spiritual utterance with a literary rather than a logical relation to the theme of the sermon there may be no proposition to be defended. And so the logical homiletic steps of proof, first, secondly, thirdly, may be unnecessary. And the whole sermon may be application. It is not surprising, therefore, that one finds much greater variety in modern preaching than would have been possible in a former day. There is a tendency to approximate the ordinary forms of public speech. It is a reproach to say that a man has a pulpit tone or manner, He does not wish to be called a sermonizer. He finds his inspiration not in the scholastic preachers, but in the prophets of righteousness. He speaks as man to man in the way of genuine eloquence. Phillips Brooks is the most conspicuous example of this. The Continuance of Traditional Forms And yet the sermon has still a form of its own and is likely to retain it, The Bible is the only book for the pulpit the sermon still begins with some great word from that treasure house of spiritual experience and it is still vital with scripture reference and illustration the sermon is not quite like other speech we listen to lectures from men who are capable of giving us information or of entertaining us we listen to speeches from advocates of a cause But only in the sermon do we let a man open his heart to us and summon us to righteousness and faith. A certain hereditary character will therefore always give form to the sermon. In the hands of the skilled preacher this will not be obtrusive. With the less able, the conventional form will naturally be more evident. Van Dyke is an especially good example of a preacher who uses largely the conventional form yet in such a way that his sermon seems genuine speech spurgeon with his wonderful spontaneity does not read well because of his stilted homiletic form the new homiletics declining emphasis of old distinctions it is evident that the task of homiletics is a new one the division of sermons into textual topical Narrative, special, is no longer significant. Indeed, few preachers have a clear understanding of what was involved in the distinction between topical and textual. Practically, a sermon either starts from a text which stirs the preacher's imagination and gives him a theme which he develops, or it starts from some other germinal thought for which he may seek an appropriate text at any time in the preparation of the sermon. There is no vital difference between the two. If the divisions of the sermon should be derived from the text, that is quite an incidental matter. Expository preaching has still a certain distinctness. It involves interesting problems of historical interpretation, social imagination, and rhetorical unity. More work ought to be done in the training of good expository preachers. The Message of the Preacher Formerly, exegetics and theology furnished a man his message, while homiletics gave him his method of presentation. But if the message is to come from a preacher's experience, the most fundamental homiletic problem is not one of manner, but of matter. The most frequent failure of the pulpit has been, not in that a man has spoken badly, but in that he has had nothing to say, It is the duty of homiletics to study the content of the messages that are stirring the souls of men. The Place of Formal Homiletics The ministry is par excellence the speaking profession. Lawyers and politicians speak a great deal, but, except on important occasions, do not deliver carefully prepared discourses. There is little attention to form in the argument addressed to a court, or in much of parliamentary debating, but the necessity which is upon the preacher to deliver regularly two discourses every week upon the same general theme, within the limited space of about thirty minutes, and with a certain emotional quality, constitutes a demand for severe study of form the ordinary training in rhetoric and elocution must be extended to a careful study of the methods of religious discourse. The preacher must learn the principles of the oral style of the pulpit, which is at once dignified, earnest, and vivacious. THE PSYCHOLOGY OF PREACHING After the acquisition of correct habits of speech, the problem of effective preaching is fundamentally one of psychology. The interaction of a religious leader and the hearers of his speech takes us to the psychology of mood, apperception, emotion, suggestibility, the psychology of the social consciousness, and, in the case of more intense religious appeal, to the psychology of the crowd. End of chapter 10, part 1